0: Hey, everybody. This is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. Folk Stories is a podcast where I talk to interesting people, and we dive into where they came from, what they do, and stories they have to share. An announcement before starting today's episode. I'm going to be in China for the next two weeks on some personal travel. So Folk Stories will take a two-week break and be back first week of November. And now to get on with today's show. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have days where I wake up in the morning and think of everything wrong in the world. It's really fun. I suggest you try it sometime. Sometimes this can be overwhelming, especially when I think of all the issues in today's world. Everything from climate change to nuclear weapon proliferation to extreme social inequality. Sometimes it's hard to know where to start. And as a consequence, I typically don't do anything about it. That's why I'm glad that there are people like Sarah Smith, my guest today, who looks at this and actually does something about them. Sarah Smith is the executive director at Sawhorse Revolution, which is a nonprofit that teaches carpentry skills to high school students and organizes them to build structures for the greater good. Examples of past and current projects include a 40-foot long bridge, tiny houses for the homeless, and an 18-foot octagonal platform wrapped around an old Douglas fir 30 feet above the ground, otherwise known as a very big tree house. Sarah graduated with an English degree in 2008, right into the financial crisis. Because of the extreme difficulty in finding a job, Sarah used that time to learn hands-on skills such as sewing, cooking, and carpentry. It was her work in carpentry at a summer camp in Arlington with high school students that led to the genesis of Sawhorse evolution. At Sawhorse, she and the organization empower students to fix problems that they see in the world through carpentry. While this might not be the solution to homelessness, it is a step in the right direction and a call to action for the rest of us. In today's episode, We talk about taking the time to discover what you're good at and what you want to do. We talk about software's evolution and the programs it provides. And we talk about doing social good with whatever means you have at your disposal. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sarah, and I really hope you do too. And so now, without any further ado, I give you Sarah Smith. Sarah, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Kevin.
0: I figure there's a lot of places we could start. But the first thing I want to ask you is how did somebody who studied English in university end up building tiny houses?
1: Well, you wouldn't think it's a linear route, and it turns out that it's actually not a linear route. Um, I think the timing had the most to do with it. Uh, I studied English literature from 2004 to 2008 at the University of Puget Sound and emerged from college with a sparkling bachelor's degree in May of 2008. And no less than 120 days later, the economy completely bottomed out. So moving from <laughs> uh, that experience really showed me or just, just opened my eyes to the sort of lack of of job skills that I actually left college with, like despite being told my whole life, like doing well in school will definitely guarantee you a job. This is how you have a secure life. And I know that those things now are correlated, but The obvious thing at the moment was um, that I didn't have any useful skills and nobody would hire me for anything other than being a nanny. I couldn't even get a tutoring job. I couldn't even get a writing center job. And I couldn't, uh, there was just, there were no jobs available for people without three to five years of experience. So that was fairly stunning and spurred some interest that I already had in hands-on skills. And I spent the next few years learning everything that I could about sewing and cooking and building, and also uh, kind of ranting, kind of reading philosophy with my friends about the lack of hands-on training and then the meaningful, uh, the sort of like the meaning that can arise from working with your hands. And if I can
0: interrupt, oh yeah, please. I'm curious how uh, you know not finding uh, jobs in sociology for the English. Um, translated into working with your hands. Like, where did that leap come from?
1: I wanted a skill that would never be able to um, be outsourced or that would never be able to, that I could travel with anywhere I go. And no matter what would happen, the credential is not so much what degree you have um, or what the market is, but it's just what you can do. So, if you can cook, you can get a job as a cook anywhere. And if you can build, you can get a job as a builder anywhere. So that was part of it was just the sort of like practical opposition of everything. Um, but then also uh, I think I recognized the, I was, I think I was really interested in and still am the like physical activity aspect and the kind of, um, I felt like one of the things that we get robbed of in our education is uh, the kind of thinking that comes when you work with your hands, like the, Actual root for hand, well, in French is me, the word M-A-I-N, which if you then study word roots, the root of that is M-N, which is the same word as mind. So it's this idea that there's a connection between the hand and the mind, and that there's a kind of thinking that arises when you are working with your hands. So. In a way, the thinking of English literature and then the thinking of working with your hands, there's two kinds of thinking. And I really am interested in how to understand the world and how to think about the world. And that can happen through poetry and that can happen through these like extremely beautiful, um, really dense, challenging to understand like 18th and 19th century poems. And then it can also happen through um you know, hammering a board and realizing that you're not hammering properly because you're afraid or because, uh, you're using your brain, you're using your like prefrontal cortex instead of just letting the body's intelligence like work for you. So those are both ways of interrogating being a human being. And I definitely felt that I was missing one of those, like one of those was undeveloped and one of those was very developed. So, um, it wasn't, It wasn't just about jobs, as you're probably catching on to.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. And I think it is something I've also noticed is, like nowadays, we focus a lot on STEM and all these higher level, I would say, like service skills and stuff that mostly involves sitting in front of a computer all day. Mm -hmm. Um, I can tell you that's what I do. and. There's something about working with your hands, like being physical. That's just very satisfying, and very visceral. Like at the end of the day, you can see like this is something that I've built. Um, one thing that I feel like, like being in the city, for example, is that you don't necessarily have a lot of opportunities to do that. For example, if I were to start, you know, nailing things in my wall, my neighbors <laughs> would get all on my arms. Yeah. So, how did you, you know, you have this desire to start working with your hands? Mm-hmm. How did that manifest into different jobs and? actions that Mm. you took
1: thank you Uh, it's a good question the first the first and easiest leap for me was that uh, I started volunteering up at a farm that was connected with my uh, college which is University of Puget Sound one of my professors and a couple of my friends were already volunteering up there so has a lot of youth education opportunities, a lot of adult education, and also a lot of work party days. So I was lucky enough to go up there and have some of my first experiences building, be actually demolition. There was a really gross house that was called the Blue House and I spent two days with a crowbar like not knowing what I was doing, but really just starting to learn about leverage in a really hands-on way and kind of had this taste of what it is to to work with and alongside professional builders who like when you're just flailing around not knowing what's going on they'll come around and be like here try it this way and just kind of like you know the nail that you've been working on for 10 minutes they've ripped out three in the last 15 seconds so uh that um that was one of my first experiences being able to work alongside professional builders and build And then also um, dated a chef for a couple of years and was working in a restaurant in, like, the front of house. But I would harass the chefs in the back so often, just like, what are you doing? How are you doing that? What are you doing? That I would pick up knife skills and recipes and methods both at home and then at work. So both of those things, like, allowed me to... To also like become like a pretty well versed cook, I'm not like the world's best chef, but I've got some knife skills and I can cook just about whatever.
0: Got it. So sounds like you ended up doing quite a lot of different things yeah. involving your hands. And in that time, um, if I got this correctly, you also went back to school and you got a graduate degree from Harvard. Mm-hmm, I did. Um, how did that play into the picture?
1: I knew leaving school that I was really interested in education. I don't know why. Like, people would probe and say, like, why are you interested in education? And it's just a natural love for learning and a natural love for school and education in lots of different ways. Um, So I knew I wanted to go into education. And the school choice was more literally, like, Well, it was two things. It was first that I wanted a degree that would be sparkling forever. So if I was going to go to grad school and spend money and go into further debt, I was really hopeful that it would be a school that would um, always look good on a resume and allow me still the freedom to move anywhere and kind of always have something. And then uh, also they have a really interesting neurobiology and education program that – I was intrigued by and partially to give some language around experiential education and partially because I met some people who had kind of come from that school and who like seemed to have a magic knowledge of the human brain. And I kind of wanted to like absorb some of that magic knowledge.
0: So you went to Harvard, you absorbed all <laughs> sorts of magic, yeah. and <laughs> came out with a sparkling degree, mm-hmm. and then... At that point, what uh, were the events that led up to the founding of Sawhorse?
1: Uh, Sawhorse had already been an idea before I left for grad school. So we had done our first summer camp where we built a treehouse up at this farm where I had been volunteering and still do volunteer. Um, We'd done that twice and had had a lot of conversations around what it would look like to bring this model of professional carpenters working with high school students on inspiring projects into the city. So we thought we were going to do it, um, but I was working with two friends at the time, Adam and Micah, and when I came back, Adam had secured uh, just a teeny bit of startup money so that we could do a program in the city and pilot basically an after-school program that would have two employees that would be able to kind of hopefully kickstart this education program.
0: What made you decide to target high school students versus another demographic?
1: Uh, That's actually a pretty easy answer. We did a summer camp with elementary students, our first go-around of doing a summer camp, and it was just so intense. Like, the amount of energy that they have versus the amount of energy that we have was uh, just almost amusing. So I think we decided we wanted to work with students who were a little bit, like less just children running through the field and a little bit more like able to have focused projects. Um, so it was, it was really about the kind of education I think that we as educators were interested in providing and the kind of challenges that we really saw ourselves as up to. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. It makes
0: sense. (laughs) Uh, being, having served at camps, uh, counseling elementary school children, it amazes me. I mean, if people want a perpetual energy source, just yeah. look at a kid.
1: Yeah.
0: You <laughs> for your initial batch of students, what sort of projects were you doing?
1: We did in the city or at the farm?
0: Um, in the city. Well, I guess if I'm trying to sort through the timeline. Yeah. Here, the farm, If I, and totally correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, I, I think the farm was a separate program that inspired softwares. It for- just turned into
1: sawhorse. We didn't know it was called Sawhorse Revolution yet, but now when we say sawhorse started, we say it started in 2010, which was our first summer camp because that's essentially the inception. And we still do a summer camp up there. But it sounds like the in-city programs is is the question. And um, our first projects were to, was it to build an outdoor kitchen at Green Plate Special, which is like a community garden. And we were kind of Just thinking about community service as the main aspect of the in-city programs that, unlike Smoke Farm, where you can build a treehouse 30 feet up in the forest canopy, uh, Seattle has permits and (laughs) um, a lot of different considerations. So we thought to have that same connection with your surroundings that you do when you're in nature and you're on a farm. And
0: And to clarify, Smoke Farm is the summer program um, on the farm. Yes. You guys have been running for well, a couple of years now.
1: Yeah. Eight eight years we've done summer camps okay. and then we've done in city programs since twenty twelve.
0: Okay. So sorry to interrupt. Okay. So, yeah. in the city, yes, there's a lot more permitting restrictions.
1: Yes, there's permitting restrictions, there's sort of different uh time limitations. So we decided to opt for a smaller smaller project scope and basically recruit students by in the same way that we still do, which is by going into their classrooms in Franklin High School, for the most part, showing pictures of high school students building stuff and saying, like, hey, you can get uh, your community service hours by working with professional carpenters, and there's all these other benefits, plus it might be fun. So,
0: Yeah, I think if I were in high school and getting that offered, I don't see why like, not everybody <laughs> would be jumping on that. Yeah. Um, how has Conception been at high schools?
1: It's been, it's been really great. Um, it's, there is nothing really like sawhorse available for most students and especially not consistently available. There'll be a pop-up here or a pop-up there. Um, but we show up at Franklin a couple times a year recruiting teenagers and they know to expect us and they get really excited about it and they tell their friends and then their friends come and there's always this like little core of students who develops for each program who just like saw is their thing um so yeah it's really gratifying when that when that kind of gels at the high schools and it pretty much always does it seems to be how it works
0: when you came out of uh graduate school or i guess like even before that like yeah. did you was this something that you thought you would be doing like working at a nonprofit, um maybe not specifically carpentry mm. Um, like, what was your original intention, like, all the way back when you first graduated with the English degree? Like, what did you think you would be doing? And-
1: oh, I think that was a problem that I didn't know what I actually wanted to do. For a while, I wanted to be a book editor. For a while, I wanted to be a museum curator. For a while, I wanted to be an archaeologist. So I've had personally a few different ideas about my career, but didn't, I don't think, and I mean, another reason uh, that I'm interested in Sawhorses And it's educational possibilities going forward is that I don't actually think personally, whether that's just me or the schooling that I had, I don't think I was really prepared to know how to think about myself and what, how to make a choice about a career, like what I'm good at, what kind of career would be right for me and my talents, how to like make judgments in that zone. Um, always been kind of this like follow your passion thing but i'm a really easily distracted person and i'm passionate about something different every single year and i get really into it so i had a lot of similarly then i had a lot of career ideas and it didn't occur to me that i would be working at a nonprofit. um i thought maybe i would get a writing job but i i just like didn't have an image um in my head of what i wanted to do in a certain way
0: it's also and it's something I've heard a lot um, from my friends and I've been going through that as well. Um, and I think it's just this idea that well, you know, you go through formal schooling for all your life and then at the end of it they drop you out into the world and you're supposed to know what you're doing when you don't really have that prior experience to drop from. Um, so I, I feel like in some sense it makes complete sense if you're like completely honest with yourself that you wouldn't know what you wanted it to do because um, a lot of that depends on trial and exploration, which is not necessarily what people have had a chance to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And especially because it's hard to just jump in high up in the book editing world. I think unless you're very uh, talented or very lucky and it's hard to jump into the museum curating world. So it's, it's extra challenging and I, I don't know I mean there's this idea of, about internships right now I think that co- I know colleges are getting really excited about um, but I'm, I'm also just not sure that that's that that's what's necessary like I, and again like I don't actually know what's needed or what would be helpful for all people but I know what eventually was helpful for me was just learning learning who I am in a professional environment and what my you know what my skills and aptitudes are that I didn't know about in school.
0: So, and now having gone through that process of uh, cooking and building and going back to school and doing the softwares, what have you found out about yourself as far as skills and aptitudes and where your, where your strengths and passions lie?
1: I think I was really surprised at some point to find out that I actually function pretty well as a leader. And it's, it's a word that I still feel strange using because it implies such a hierarchy and such a, um, you know, almost like a corporate mindset that I think Sawhorse just, like, really is, like, yeah. Like, nothing against Amazon or anything, but uh, just, like, we, you know, love being covered in sawdust and, like, working shoulder to shoulder, like, that kind of image. But um, to s- realize that I am... Super interested in working with groups of people and getting groups organized and um, allowing that group like each person within that group to kind of find themselves as a part of the group um, and that that for me is what leadership is and can be is supporting the people that you're working with um, and really then the Like, the sort of, like, dark side of that coin is, like, I don't love having a boss, (laughs) and I couldn't know that in school because, to me, a teacher wasn't the same thing as a boss, and once I went into just whatever jobs and started kind of having a boss and things weren't on my terms and my paper or whatever – um, I was really not into that situation. So I learned I had inherited something of my dad and my mom's anti-authoritarian streak and was like, okay, cool. I guess I probably shouldn't work for anyone else. <laughs> so that's that's sort of the, the flip side of that aptitude. Um, yeah. And then an ongoing interest in sort of beauty and creativity in everyday life and how architecture and construction are real players in that, I think – uh, that's part of why I love poetry is just because it's super beautiful and it's something I still get to explore within Sawhorse is creating these like incredible, if if folks listening look up sawhorserevolution.org we just finished this octagonal treehouse with like a mandala framing plan and like it's just so gorgeous and being able to work on that for me is is like a lifelong passion and interest that can take many forms but it's something that like I didn't quite identify in that way, um, until I'd been working for years. It's like able to figure it out.
0: It's always better to figure these things out, uh, no matter how long it takes. Um, I've had friends who the eighth year in their residency program at Stanford medical school, they realize they don't want to be a doctor, mm. um, but they still go through with it yeah. sometimes. And... <laughs> also tree house. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, What is the treehouse? Why was it? Where is it? (laughs) How did you guys end up building it?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, the treehouse, it's actually what we did this summer for our camp. And it was our first project ever with Sawhorse. So it's at Smoke Farm. And we ended up building it originally. Like, the joke is that... Uh, we wanted to do a carpentry summer camp, and we didn't want it to look like child labor. So we should do something completely useless. So why not a treehouse? It would be really inspiring and fun for the builders and fun for everybody. That's kind of the joke. Um, and the reality is that we wanted to do something just like crazy and unique. Like if you've got if you've got the time and you've got the chance, like you know why build a bench when you can build a bench thirty feet in the air? <laughs> like that kind of like stupid ambition that makes it fun. Um, but yeah, it had gotten pretty rotten and we didn't know very much about design back in the day. So, uh, with one of our like main designer friends or two of our main designer friends just went back up and like did a lot of like sitting around in the tree and like making observations about like what was working and what was not working. Um, in terms of the relationship of like this wood structure to the tree itself and the view and how to think about that. Um, so we really... Kind of had a long day of design and the treehouse is for um artist retreats it's for uh people to stay in up at smoke farm but the function isn't quite as there's a whole tradition in architecture i don't know if you've heard the term folly maybe it sounds familiar there there are these just kind of like it it's this idea of a structure that's just like kind of out of the way and a little bit more complicated than it needs to be but they're like oftentimes super beautiful and offer just a view or like a place to sit that's just different and unique in itself so it's more like an art it's more like an art installation that you happen to be able to sleep in
0: Uh, (laughs) those are my favorite sorts of art installations Yeah. (laughs) when you're building a treehouse are there any special considerations um, you need to take into account for like how much weight the branches support and
1: yes <laughs> there's a lot Uh luckily with this treehouse in the first go around we had like a nuclear engineer kind of do a lot of math for us to figure it out and I think I can't remember the exact number of pounds but you would have to have like 80 people up there before it would actually even start to feel anything Um it's more important to think about how the like the key parts are how the treehouse is actually intersecting with the tree and how that um may or may not damage the tree going forward and how the tree is going to grow out within the places it's been pierced so that's that's like really the key aspect of any tree and treehouse building group is just like and they're all they're we're friends with a couple of them and there's just that perennial question of, like, well, how do you attach to the tree? Like, how do you attach to the tree? So, um, yeah, I think that's, like, probably the most important special consideration.
0: If there are pictures of the tree house, uh or links, I will definitely have them also included in the show notes okay. so people can take a look. Fantastic.
1: Um,
0: and it's something I'll come back to because it's definitely been a lifelong dream for me. Oh, really? Oh, cool. I think... Ever since I'm a big, I was, I am a big fan of Calvin Hobbes. Oh, nice! And just Calvin going up (laughs) in his treehouse, avoiding girls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what set me on the (laughs) building a treehouse. But get there. When you're taking kids through these uh, building programs, what do you want them to get out of it?
1: It's a very good question. And um, I think for every kid who goes through the program, I would like them to feel stronger and like they understand a strength they didn't know they had. So kind of like we were talking about, like have an experience of, of working and understand yourself a little bit better and like feel really pumped about that. Like maybe they didn't know that they were brave and that they could, you know, in a certain way, like, have a fear and then totally overcome that. Or maybe they didn't know, like, how freaking good at, like, mental math they are. Or maybe they didn't know that, like, really they have a flair for explaining design or that they're really good at sort of thinking spatially, even if they don't feel comfortable speaking up in groups. So that's that's one thing. I don't have a... A generic like oh every kid needs to feel like XYZ but like hopefully there's at least one thing about themselves that they feel um, they recognize as a strength that maybe they didn't before, and then uh, I want every kid going through softwares to have like a really strong experience of sort of for lack of a better word community, and it always I think it always happens in our programs just naturally as you go through the program as a group like including the adults like including all the designers including sometimes even our like build clients including the adult volunteers and all the students like to really feel like yeah we're working on this together like this is us we did this um and the sort of like joy and relaxation and the support of being in a community where suddenly you're you can experience yourself being strong and you can like screw up and then have to deal with it and no one's going to punish you, but they're also going to be like, okay, cool. Take that nail back out. Like try again. Um, so yeah, just like that holistic experience of community is something that I want every kid to get. And then I kind of covered it a little bit, but I also hope that every student at least faces like three things that are huge challenges for them and that they at least try something that is like way outside of their norm. So it doesn't matter whether they succeed or fail like, and, and it is so unique to every person, like what those are. Cause some kids are great at math and like terrified of ladders. And some kids are so great with like power tools on top of ladders and just like terrified of fractions. So just like whoever, um, there's every single challenge it's a kind of a dream for an educator because there's challenges and successes everywhere for every student and you can kind of like almost like play the play the keyboard of like support and challenge for people that is such a cool such a cool opportunity
0: yeah it, it's and this seems very much the complete opposite of the whole standardized you know curriculum, yeah. <laughs> uh, testing it's you're building a house mm-hmm. and everything that might come with it oh yeah If, um, let's say, there are parents or maybe high school students who are interested in this and they want to figure out what does this actually look like? Mm -hmm. um, How does, um, when one enters the program, can you walk through how, like, what the series of events are? Is it something that people do for a summer? Mm. Is it something they do year long? Are the projects big, small? Like What does that program kind of look like?
1: Uh, So as with our education system, so with our programs, there's not like a huge, uh, there's a lot of variety from program to program, but we do have like essentially three or four different static models that go on repeat. Um, So there's school year programs and summer programs. That's the first easy way to divide it. Within the school year programs, we have... uh, small like build only programs that meet twice a week at the interagency Academy. And those are closed. Those are only for interagency students um, because that school works with like a pretty interesting demographic who has a lot of like various needs and challenges. So that one meets twice a week for 10 weeks and they build, they build only they'll maybe have a little design conversation. Um, But then our long School year programs we call design builds, and in those, students will meet every week from like mid October to mid December or even mid January, then subtracting the holidays. Uh, meet every week to design a structure for a community client, and then in the spring, we'll sort of take a couple months off and let the darkness ensue. <laughs> And the rain come down and when things start to ease up a little bit, usually in late March, we restart program with that same batch of students and they begin to build the structure that they designed. So that's also once a week and that will run through like mid-June, basically. So like late March to mid-June. And those are kind of those are like flagship programs in a way. I think they're they're really resource intensive on our end because it's an entire year of working with students. They all receive like 120 hours of professional mentorship. We work with some of the best architecture and construction firms in the city to provide mentorship. So it's like it's a really cool um, opportunity for the teens. Um so yeah those are those are some of the programs, and then we have a student leadership program in the summers that runs the community builds that you were at that's still in basically pilot mode and then a week long retreat summer camp for, that's open to anyone so yeah that's probably the easiest one for parents to sign their kids up for because uh recruitment's happening now for the design builds
0: that's the gateway I so
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: so it sounds like. The students, when you're actually building for community clients, you're not just building these structures as a way of uh, learning to build, but, but yeah. they actually go into the community. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about some of the past projects and where they and what they're being used for today?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, our first design build ever was a animal pen renovation at the Seattle Children's Playgarden, which is both a public park and a private preschool that works with typically abled and disabled preschoolers. So our students designed animal pens for the geese and the bunnies and the ducks and the chickens that live there. Um, And they did a lot of like their client interview was taking into account both the needs of animals and the needs of preschoolers who are like somewhere on the spectrum between typically abled and disabled. So, um, it was a really like that showed us that it was possible to do design builds. Cause we've, we've essentially just like pioneered all of our program models. Um, so that was our pilot experience of that and a really cool example of it. And then another, then most of our design builds have been tiny houses for people experiencing homelessness and it's an incredible way of sort of changing the relationship to a really, um, really challenging social ill. And and it's like a confident endorsement, like, yes, you can do something. And then there's also almost this inherent, like, humble acknowledgement, like, but it's not very much. <laughs> um, but it still means a lot to, like, the one person uh, that that does get the house or the family. So the students experience um, community service in a really different way. That's not just about like, I'm the savior, I'm giving you this, you know, or here I am at this random soup kitchen. My mom made me come to, but they really understand the client and they are in service to the client's needs. And the thing about design is that you don't just walk a mile in someone's shoes. You also take your shoes off at the door and like design where to put them and all that kind of thing. So, um, those have been a couple examples. And then we're doing a really cool one with our all women's program, this year where groups can actually apply to us and we're working with the city of Seattle on an RFP that is open now through October 14th, which I think, so it'll be closed by the time this comes out. Um, but next year, next year. Yeah. Hopefully next year. So support saw horse. And then maybe this will work again next year, but we are groups will apply to us. And then if they win, we'll design and build them a structure. And then moreover, um, it'll be designed and built if they want on some pieces of unused city property, and if all goes well, they will actually get the property transferred to their organization's name for free forever. So it's this crazy like capacity building project that we're like lucky enough to be a part of. Um, so yeah, those are those are three that I'm really just very excited about
0: <laughs> and those sound like super very exciting projects i know from being some on this that sometimes you've gotten criticism from people who talk about well you know these are big social issues you're building infrastructure mm-hmm. like why should we let high school students do that like shouldn't that be a job left to professional and i'm wondering what your comments about that are
1: yeah um I mean it's a big social issue for sure, so I would never want to take away that spectrum on it and I think there is with the tiny houses in general, if someone actually wanted to critique the quality of our tiny houses, I would welcome them to try because um in general, especially the student design build ones um, are just as our goal is to make them as well built as any house and better than some craftsmen around the city um, because we wouldn't want to build or give somebody a house that we wouldn't be okay with staying in ourselves. That's kind of the design ethic and the build ethic. Yeah. There'll be a 16th off here and there, maybe an eighth, but like in the grand scheme of things, like a beautiful materials palette a considerate design, adequate storage, dry, like well built and dried in structures, like really do make a difference for people who have been living in tents or on cou- couches or out of cars. Um, so, in general, the quality of our houses, I would say, is very good, um, but I would not want them to become in any way a band aid for this massive uh, sort of tide that's going on. And if if anything, they are uh, and I will have to think about whether I want this to stay in the podcast or not, but if anything, they're a gesture that, um, it's not quite a protest, but it is a little bit like, look, if high schoolers can do it, you know, maybe you should do more. Um, it's like, we know that it's not enough, but we're doing something and we're doing what we can. So it's really not meant to be in any way a band aid, but more, um, an encounter for the people doing it with the vastness of the issue. And then also, um, hopefully a provocation for more people to do more work on it. Just to say like, it's like an affirmation of like, yes, you can do something if you just get started. Like let's not be afraid to try new things and let's not be afraid to like put people in housing now. Um, so that's, that's part of our sort of approach and it is gestural and it is, I really hope it doesn't let other people off the hook um, and, yeah, some of, some of our houses have been better built than others, but I think some are just as as well built as anything, you know, you could hope to find. So,
0: I think sometimes when uh, we think about problems like climate change or homelessness, mm-hmm. it can be so overwhelming yeah. that it's hard to do anything at all. Yeah, um, And sometimes, you know, as quaint as it sounds, like the journey <laughs> of a thousand miles, it's the little steps along the way. And I think, um, to your point of like, if you can take high school students and build houses and do something, then that's a challenge to the rest of society of what is everyone else doing or not doing in these situations.
1: Exactly. In 2014, uh, the only tiny houses for homeless were, I think, just some rotten shacks in Nicholsville. And then we built them one and dropped it off. And then now today in 2018, there must be almost 200 across the city and we've built 10% of those. So it's, it is just like when there is, I'm sure everybody's familiar with this feeling, but when there's a big project or a big annoying task, even not on the climate change scale, but like in your own life that you don't want to do, one of the hardest steps is getting started. Like one of the hardest things to do is just like, okay, I know I need to X, Y, Z boring thing, but, just getting started is, like...
0: I have an entire bucket list of projects that <laughs> attest to getting started. It's very hard.
1: Yeah, and I am preaching this, but I also experience that, like, yeah. every day.
0: Something I realized is we've been talking about tiny houses, and for people who are not familiar, mm-hmm. like, what exactly is a tiny house, and how is a tiny house maybe different from a regular house or some other structure?
1: That's a great question. Um, a tiny house is smaller, and in the context of the ones that we build, they're all 120 square foot projected roof area or a little less. And the idea there is to just slide right under the Seattle building code. And the city knows about these structures and they know that they are being used as residences, which isn't strictly to code. Um, but the city has been super generous and essentially allowed them to go forward, provided they stay in this 120 square foot, um, range. And then in all of the houses that we build um, go to the Nicholsville and Low Income Housing Institute tiny house villages. So sometimes Nicholsville is part of it. Sometimes they're not. But the villages themselves um, are tiny house villages organized by at least one of those two groups. And so the houses are basically bedrooms. Um, they don't have plumbing because that's a big permitting thing and also really challenges the permanence idea. But they do usually retroactively get electrical. And that's all paid for and done through the Low Income Housing Institute because of the permitting again. So, yeah, a bedroom, a light, electrical outlet for some heat. They use like oil heaters in there. um, And ours are all like as well insulated as we can possibly (laughs) get away with. Um, And then, kitchen and bathroom are communal in the villages.
0: For uh, the houses, when you build them up, do they actually come with addresses? Like, can people get mail? Does it count as a permanent residency?
1: Um, It does that the villages get mail and the villages can count as a residency. So yeah, it's one of the main arguments for tiny house villages is that they allow people to stay employed um, who have that kind of requirement.
0: Some of the work I've recently come across is a big part of the challenge is not having a permanent address. Yeah. And something that a lot of, things like opening a, a bank account or mm-hmm. getting a job, something that you just need. And so even ju- if it's just providing an address, that's really a big step up. Um, something similar to tiny houses I've also heard about are like prefab houses. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, what is the difference between a tiny house and a prefab house?
1: What's the context for a prefab house?
0: Uh, so the prefab houses I think I've seen are the ones that they give you the parts and then or, like, they make very standard parts, and you put them together. I'm thinking, like, serious catalog homes back in the mm-hmm. day. And nowadays it's, yeah, like, you have standard rooms that you slot in and you attach.
1: Yeah. Um, they are making pretty cool versions of those now, for even for uh, homeless application. Homeless application. But out of this material called a SIPS panel, which I think is structural insulated panel system. Um, but it's essentially like two sheets of plywood that are custom milled to size. And then with like a big chunk of styrofoam insulation in between, and they're incredibly, uh, warm because styrofoam is just, there's a consistent envelope around the house. If that word envelope makes sense. Um, but like wood and studs and two by fours are really pretty like poor insulators. Like, if you think of picking up a piece of two-by-four, which I don't know if everyone can, but if it's been sitting outside in the cold, it's going to be really cold versus if you pick up a piece of styrofoam, it's going to be kind of meh, whatever. Um, it doesn't really take in the outside influence. So when you build a wall with studs, you create like essentially every 16 inches this like cold spot on your walls versus if you have the SIPs panel, it's very warm, um, all the way around, there's not much of a place for the heat to leave or the cold to get in. So those are, those are pretty cool, but they're not really our ethic. Like we're really not about having standardized, easy to put together things. It's all about having challenges and inconsistencies and confronting them as a way to learn more about yourself and to connect with each other. So, I mean, sawhorse won't, do the prefab thing, but I totally get the application and I'm not, and I'm in, in support of it. If it's going to give more people warm housing and especially if it's beautiful and a little more dignified.
0: Yeah. Something that, um, I think you mentioned on the South horse website, something I think I've also heard you talk about is this tr- concept of pride and dignity mm-hmm. and finding that in your work and the things that you do. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I was talking with my friend who's really on the design end of things. He's technically a garden designer, but uh, I was asking him what he thought of our summer camp because he came by and he was involved in the design of this treehouse. And he's he's like one of my favorite people, um, just philosophically and personally, just like a really inspiring mentor in a way and a friend. And he just kind of like thought for a second and said like, this is kind of like, it's like a construction site. It's like, you know how... Uh, builders like to just kind of stand back and just like chat about what they're doing and like, look at it. It's like, that's like what this feels like. Like everybody falls in love with their project and kind of gets connected to um, this feeling of uh, freedom and also care for what they're building. And I have to confess, I've, Like, I don't know if this should go in the podcast or not, but, um, dignity would not have been my choice of word. That was that. I think the manifesto is maybe what you're thinking of.
0: I'm thinking of the manifesto. Yeah.
1: The manifesto is amazing, but, uh, I wouldn't have used that word dignity. We had a builder who was like really into that word for a while. So it just like ended up in there. But I, um... But for me, like, I, it's even hard, it's good to put a word on whatever feeling our manifesto is talking about. Um, freedom would be like another, another way to talk about it, or sort of like whatever the feeling is of being, being on a meaningful journey. Like, here's where literature comes in again, but actually being on a path, being on an adventure, being on a journey, like, I don't know if that's dignity. <laughs> like, I don't know if that, that is what that sort of, feeling is. But um, other than the word dignity, I'm like all about our manifesto. And then the word dignity always trips me up. So I'm sorry, I don't have a great, uh, great response to it.
0: <laughs> Two out of three. I, I will take that. Okay. <laughs> so your day today day. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could walk us through what a typical day for you might look like.
1: Unfortunately, Kevin, that's gonna be really hard because I don't have a typical day um, but I can offer a typical week.
0: Yes, why don't we go Okay.
1: <laughs> um, so a typical school year week might involve on Sunday, uh, me getting snacks in the morning for our all-women's program, texting a bunch of teenagers, hoping that they show up, reminding them that there's class, as if there ever wasn't, on Sundays at 10.30, and um, then working with them like for four or five hours on some aspect of the design and whether that's warming up on client consultation, uh, basically co-facilitating. We have two amazing female architect mentors who really mostly lead that conversation, but I'm always piping up from the back and helping shape things Um, and then clean up and debrief, taking photos and then the next since i'm executive director now i'm no longer program director so a lot of my work has to do with um checking in with everybody else (laughs) seeing how everybody else's projects are doing um going to meetings um during the summer there's a lot more builds that are happening so i try to show up as many as i can partially because like i want to help and partially because i love doing it um and then also just like sending a hundred million emails, working on branding packets, figuring out budgets, going to the bookkeeper meetings with the bookkeeper, having meetings with like various nonprofit people about partnerships and about strategic planning, trying to get our fundraisers set up for the year, submitting grants. It's really um, I love it because there is just such a diversity of things that I do day in day out, and I never know like where I am going to be on what what day like it's just always an adventure
0: and from what we talked about like your background and doing a Mm -hmm. well variety of things it seems like you're keeping well up with that tradition
1: oh yeah if it gets too standardized like i can't uh continue to keep just walking in the same the poet william blake calls it the same dull round but yeah that's not really
0: for me i'm wondering Besides for being able to pull out amazing quotations at will, yeah, <laughs> what do you find um, like having taking and study your English really? Um, how do you find that being used if you use it in your day to day?
1: Recently, I've actually been reflecting that I do use it in my day to day, and on the most basic level, writing emails, writing grants, writing marketing copy, having like a good overview of grammar and sentence structure and sentence variety and storytelling makes a huge difference for um, my ability to actually perform my job and then on a deeper level just actually I think having a lot of like literary ideas and philosophical ideas that drive the work like both keep me uh motivated on the really like Cause I made, I said that about same dull round, but at the same time, like there is just so much like just diligence that is required to run a nonprofit and to keep students safe and to make sure that the finances are all like very tight. Um, you just have to be quite diligent. So times like that actually having, you know, these deeper ideas that and values and questions that I get to explore through my work that really, uh, I mean, they were inside of me, but, inside of a lot of people and school just helped them to get more developed and more like they have a lot more tools to kind of like more ability channels to like run into my daily life and run back out so they are really sources of of strength when when things get pretty when they just like demand a lot
0: when you look at challenges you face Mm -hmm. is there anything that keeps you up at night
1: Yes, always. Uh, not not always, actually, and we've had a really fabulous year, but um, I care so much about our staff, and I just really want to make sure that they are supported, because Sawhorse is kind of an extraordinarily demanding nonprofit. Like, you have to build. You have to work with teenagers. You have to have all these partnerships. You have to, like, do architecture. You have to schlep materials, buy fasteners, go to hardware stores. Like, oh, my God, the list just goes on and on. Um, So I really – keeps me up worrying about them. And then always fundraising, just making sure that we are, like – honoring the people who have given us funds that we are like using them really well and that we're going to be okay next year because this year we've been we've just had the most outrageously successful fundraising year and my hope is that i mean i just i'm I'm not really awake about it yet but like i'm like pre (laughs) like pre fretting which is which is just like it's just a it's a form of planning that I do when I know there's going to be a really big task ahead. I just start like calmly thinking about it in the background and so that I don't freak out when when it actually happens or if it happens. So, yeah. Um funding is like nonprofits are by definition precarious until you have like a million dollar endowment or whatever. Like you're, you know, we we can run right now for 4 months if nobody donates another dollar. Um but after that, that would dry up kind of or like I'd have to fire most of the staff and like that would really suck so just always having that like it's like a I don't know coyote roadrunner thing like just like you're running and then you're wondering if the ground's ever going to fall out beneath you and it doesn't matter how good your work is like there's so many social forces that kind of shape I guess it's true with all businesses but nonprofits, it feels like particularly like We have a great product, but selling it is not straightforward. Like Selling it doesn't – it's not about, quote, selling it or like just working with – oh, I should mention that all of our programs are free of cost, so we don't make money off of student tuition. We make money off of grants and individual donations and corporate sponsorships and so forth. So, yeah, I have to think about that. It's not very glamorous, but it's an important part of our mission, making sure that it's funded and staffed.
0: I'm always curious about how that works with nonprofits. As I've mostly come for the from the you know the soulless corporate yeah. side <laughs> of things, and for nonprofits, I, or like when you look into funding, like where are your biggest sources of fundings from? Like, where do you um, when you apply for grants? Mm-hmm. Is it from grants? Is it from Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaigns? Mm-hmm. Like. What have you found to be successful sources of raising funding?
1: We have, uh, the, by far the most success with, uh, foundation grants. I think like 40% of our budget comes from foundation grants, maybe 50%. So that's, that's like quite a bit. Um, but it's a lot of diverse sources within that grant zone. And then I think the next highest is city and government contributions, um, And then the next is, there's kind of then a a sort of tie between individual donations, benefit events, which Indiegogo counts technically as a benefit event. So we had like a super successful Indiegogo in 2015 um, that put us on the map in a lot of different ways. Like we're on the front page of the Seattle Times, which was fun, and uh, in the Guardian and the Huffington Post and kind of, it was like our, our little like sort of sniff at, at larger, larger press. Um, but yeah, most, most of our funds come from government grants and so we're, or not government, sorry, foundations, foundation grants. So we're trying to bolster up the benefit event and then the individual donations and corporate sponsorships aspect of Sawhorse just because there's a lot of people in company with monies in Seattle. So
0: yeah, and I think Seattle, recently they did the Tech Alliance, where prominent mm-hmm. companies came together in a council to um, look into the problems of homelessness mm-hmm. and um, having a city that is going out rapidly. And yeah. So I think there's definitely a lot of people that would uh, find what you're doing to be very valuable.
1: Yeah, I think if I have another career, which I'm sure I'll have like a couple or I'll just stick with Sauros forever. But um, I have like learned a lot about how interesting philanthropy is. It's one of the only sort of like socially and privately um, endorsed ways of redistributing resources in the United States of America. Like how else, you know, how else do you sort of like, if you have a lot of money, like let it go back into the community. Like, well,
0: it's not going to be taxes.
1: Yeah, it's not going to be taxes. Like, those are going to bombs or something. Um, but so just, like, yeah, taxes do a little bit. Like, we get government funds, and those come from taxes. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think just, like, philanthropy makes a huge difference, and you can, like, transform people's lives through giving money. And it's not a savior thing. It's just, like, a, it's a sensible sort of redistribution that can happen at a really Um, granular and precise level, depending on the nonprofit. So just to encourage people to give, like I, I do, I have like a good practice of donating money because it's just like, even with the not that much that I make, it's helpful to, to pass it on and to support other groups and to really like, you know, yeah.
0: If people are listening to this right now and feel like, wow, you guys are doing a great thing and I want to be able to support the South horse. What's the easiest way for people to do so?
1: we have a donate button on our website and there you can make a monthly contribution or a one-time gift. In another case, we'll send you a super nice thank you note and monthly members also get some sweet swag and a book. So you kind of get like all the perks for like committing to being a long term supporter.
0: Okay. And we'll have links to that in the show notes as well. Cool. Thank you. If you look at the next, uh, let's say two to five years, where do you want to take the South horse? Um, and, you know let's say like best case scenario mm-hmm. and somebody a sure. drops a couple million dollars on <laughs> horse, you know, and where do you think uh you would take this
1: so yeah, that's such a good question and it, if somebody just magically did that, um, I would say that Seattle only has three shop classes left, and at the beginning of last school year, I had four. So, um, what I would really like to do is be an organization that was secure enough and organized enough and robust enough, and then was adequately staffed enough to essentially offer opportunities for students at every high school um, that wanted it to come build and to design and build like really cool projects in their own neighborhood. So that would look like. Right now, we work with two or maybe three high schools, and Seattle has like sixteen-ish high schools. So that would look like us growing times eight. But um, assuming all was well, and we found the right staff and the right donor who was willing to work with us at the right speed, I think um, you know basically becoming becoming like a citywide resource for young people to pick up tools and build. And we actually have sort of like. How we would do that written out just in the sketchiest of forms, but, you know, where to start based on demographic need and sort of like who's been the most left out of capacity building and like not had access to resources most often. But yeah, I think tools, tools as a public right, like the ability to change your neighborhood as as an option for all young people would be. Sort of dreamy pie in the sky uh, fleet of sweet trucks flying around with a bunch of tools in a trailer and then just like showing up in various neighborhoods and building awesome stuff. Like, it doesn't sound too bad.
0: I think that sounds awesome. (laughs) That's definitely like hugely empowering, I would imagine, for people who, who could be able to do that, like see a problem and actually do something about it.
1: Yeah. Just like imagine a city. I've been sitting back and dreaming a little bit because of this RFP, but imagining a city where um, every single neighborhood like had the resources to kind of add to itself and to build itself like with the people in the neighborhood. Um, yeah, it's it's a little bit of like a Portlandia dream, maybe just a little bit. But I was still getting assuming assuming that it's all like architecturally relevant and like you know philosophically challenging. I'm I'm kind of down for it.
0: I think we can definitely dream big, and I, I think it's already incredible that everything that you have achieved. And I think. Uh, I'm looking forward to what you guys do thank you if um oh, one thing I was curious about when you're recruiting or trying to find people mm-hmm. to come work for the sawhorse what how do you do that?
1: Oh, like staff mm-hmm. um, we have sort of a mix of people who have come up quote through the ranks, but basically our most committed volunteers we've hired like three of them um and then another one we found through a friend. And then finally, and I think going forward, this will be more and more the case, but uh, just putting out a resume on Idealist or putting out a job description on Idealist and Craigslist and then accepting um, applications for the position. Got so, it. yeah, that's how we found our current program manager. She actually moved here from Minnesota for the job. And uh, we, we tell people, like, they need to have at least carpentry, architecture, or education experience Two is better. Three is best. So she had a lot of humanitarian design build experience, working all around the world, designing and building like stuff to make communities better. So she was amazing fit and brings a lot to the to the table. And she's fun. Hi Sam. <laughs> so yeah.
0: So we're getting close now to the end of the podcast. Okay. And I have a set of closing questions. So Great. I'd close out with the first one is. What's something that has recently inspired you?
1: Okay, well, my pre-canned answer to this question, since you said it ahead of time, sorry to spoil that, um, was actually that, like, when things are really tough, I love the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and so Buffy inspires me on the daily. uh, You know, she's always encountering the challenges no matter how hard they get, and still trying to be a normal girl living a normal life. So... That was my pre-canned answer to that, um, but maybe if I had thought, I, I was like, "Oh, I want to say something about this architect who's like doing this thing or this like philosophy that I really loved." Um, but like, just honestly, like right now, it's kind of Buffy. So, if you ask um, me in a month, I might be able to think of something fancier. <laughs> well,
0: I think since we're starting to go into the winter season in Seattle, uh, vampires and darkness. Feels very apropos. Exactly. <laughs> um, a funny side note about Buffy is that when I was young, there used to be this cartoon called Mona, the Vampire Hunter. Oh, really? And it is a kids' show with this girl and a cat who pretends to um, fight monsters. What? And so when people talked about Buffy for the longest time, I thought they were talking about Mona. And so people talked about. Buffy in these very mature like contexts and I just look at them and I just had no idea what they were (laughs) talking about. What are you talking about?
1: (laughs) It's like a little kid.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think it was called Mona. My next question, what is something that people might not know about you or find unusual?
1: That when I was a kid, I did a lot of theater and in said theater, I kind of, um, Played a boy for like eight shows in a row, so I think I had some cool like gender bendy experiences just from a young, from a young age.
0: Was that something that um, did you audition for the boy role? Did they cast you as a boy role, or
1: it was like community youth theater? So uh, all the auditions are very vague, and you just everybody kind of does the same thing to audition, and yeah. it Uh, there were always, like, eight boys doing theater and, like, 42 girls, so it was really common for there to be a gender crossover, um, but, yeah, I did all kinds of interesting, like, theater warm-ups to try to, like, embody, like, masculine energy and all this stuff, which I think is just, like, kind of a funny, yeah, it's a random side note about my... Uh, education as a child it's a form of empathy i think if you want to you know make it a little fancy uh thinking about it as a way of of empathizing and embodying another another person so yeah i i really appreciated that part of it
0: i don't know if this is similar but um i do salsa dancing oh yeah and uh recently i've been doing a lot more following okay and so usually in salsa there's a lead and follow so typically the lead is male and the follow is female but not necessarily. And so I've been trying to do uh, following. following. Okay. I was curious about it. And also I find that following really helps you with being mm. a better lead. Because mm-hmm. then you know where people's feet are, where their hands are, oh. what's anatomically feasible, yeah. and what you probably <laughs> shouldn't do. Because um, it's not. Um, next question. What is a belief or principle that you live by?
1: I have two Uh, the first is also William Blake quote. I wrote my thesis on William Blake in college, but he has a series of aphorisms that are really, um, really cool. And just take, you can think about them forever, basically, but it's, uh, the phrase is enough exclamation point or too much. So you always, when you're doing a project or when you're, when you're trying something out in your life, at least try it enough or do it too much. Um, but why not kind of, that that overboard like give yourself to your projects give yourself to your life attitude um and then the second one is that there's a a time for everything like that there's there's kind of like it's also i guess a relationship to doing projects but also just like where am i in my life like where should i be not imposing external external ideas of like what should be happening right now, but rather just like what is happening and a different relationship to that question of what should be happening. Like when is the time for this idea? When is the time for this idea um, to go forward? So like it's, it's a weird relationship to sort of like tempo and takes a little bit of flair, I think to, to live out because you have to be like patient and then you pounce and like suddenly it's the time for this like suddenly it's the time for this and i guess it could get into that cliche of like oh for everything there is a season turn 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 <laughs> Like, but uh i actually find it to be like pretty true that like there really are times when it's better for like xyz thing and there's really times when it's not better for xyz thing so you just have to like become as sensitive as possible to whatever's happening. And it's like the weather, like sometimes it's nice to go outside and jump in the lake and sometimes it's like too windy and cold. <laughs> so like that even in that sort of non-amorphous sense, there's a time for everything, but just just taking that to a couple different levels.
0: There's a time for everything and um, I think different people handle the times differently. I have a friend that loves to jump into Green Lake in the wintertime.
1: Oh, yeah, yes.
0: I, to me, that's the worst time. Exactly. I
1: do. was thinking that <laughs> when I was, I was saying that. I was like, yeah, my housemate loves jumping into Green Lake.
0: <laughs> well, I have one last question before I let you go. Okay. Um, this one's open-ended. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you would like to <clears throat> talk about or highlight now?
1: I think it's one more sawhorse-related thing, um, but essentially, if folks are interested in supporting us and want to come and have fun instead of just like going to our website, we our fundraiser is probably the most fun gala you could imagine. So we get together. Um, at Washington Hall, and every table sits down, and they have a pile of like machine precision milled pieces of gingerbread in the middle of the table. And you have 90 minutes as a group to complete a structure that will be part of the Sawhorse Gingerbread Village. And there's architects roving around that can help you. There's barbecue, there's wine and beer and cocktails. And at the end, there's like a celebrity judge panel, and people get awarded things like most innovative, least rectangular, tallest, etc. So could be fun um, if that's if that's something um but also i i guess i should also probably like promote some books if that's i'll have to think about which if if anyone wants a book recommendation they can also email me and tell me what they're interested maybe i can come up with a custom book recommendation for you how's that
0: it sounds amazing. Okay. Uh sounds like I might be emailing you very soon.
1: Nice. <laughs> Perfect. Um, it
0: is getting to the reading uh, time of the season. It's that time. Exactly. Yeah.
1: The time to read.
0: And the fundraiser, when is the fundraiser? Is, does it happen throughout the year or is there a specific date for it?
1: Uh, it's December 13th this year. So it's a Thursday night and we're trying not to let you out too late. It's like 6.30 to 9.30. So if people want to come as just individuals or pull a whole table together. Um, all that is totally welcome, but it's a complete blast. Like you won't regret coming and you'll have a bunch of fun and it's pretty ridiculous. So, um, yeah, I would say worth it as fundraisers go.
0: <laughs> it sounds like the most fun fundraiser I've ever heard of. So definitely the link to that and everything else we've talked about will also be included in the show notes. Okay. Uh, and with that, I've, Had a lot of fun in this conversation. So thank you so much, Sarah.
1: Likewise. Thank you, Kevin.
0: Hey, guys. It's Kevin again with just a few more notes before you go. First of all, if you enjoyed the episode and want to support the show, you can do so by giving us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you have feedback or nominations for people you would like to hear or just want to say hi, you can do so by emailing feedback at org. This email is also included in the show notes. I hope today's episode inspires you to look at problems in your community and consider what you can do to help out. Anyways, that's all on my end. Please enjoy the rest of the month and talk to you again in November.